11 through 18. Again, John 20, 11 through 18. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. The, the feeble words of my mouth uh, are not effective. They have, they have no way of, of changing hearts and changing lives, but we know that as your word goes forth by your spirit, that it does have that power. So we would pray that your word would go forth in power today, um, that you would use your word to do uh, what only you can do. And we'll give you thanks for it and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are nearing the end of our study uh, in the Gospel of John. Seems like we've been here for a while. Um, it's been, for me, glorious. I think that was John's intent all along. I think we have seen Jesus in his glory in many different ways, in many different facets. And last week, Pastor Chris took us through John's account of the resurrection, sort of a, a low-key account, really, when you think about it. Not a lot of um, bombasticness, you know, not, no, no earthquakes and no, no declarations of angels. It was just sort of a matter-of-fact kind of declaration of Jesus and his resurrection. We saw Mary Magdalene and, and perhaps others who came to the tomb and then, and then went to the disciples and said, the tomb is empty. And then we saw the two, um, you know, sort of top dog disciples uh, in a foot race trying to see who could get to the tomb first. And John and Peter both arrive, and they both see, as Mary had told them, that the tomb is empty. Um, says that John believed. I guess the implication is that Peter still wasn't quite sure. And also, even this belief that John had wasn't necessarily rooted in truth. It was rooted in, in, in what he was seeing. He, he saw the empty tomb, and there was this was alive again. And then this morning, we're going to get another, I feel like I say this just about every time, that this is a story that we only see in the Gospel of John. John obviously took great care in writing a Gospel that was not at all like the other Gospels. There were particular stories that he wanted to tell, particular incidents that he wanted to share with those who were going to be reading his gospel. And this one this morning is no different. It's a story that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture. 
The other gospel writers don't tell us this story, but, but John does. It, it, it's, it's a personal story, a very, a very intimate story. It's a, it's, a, it's a time between Jesus and just one of his, one of his devoted followers. It occurred to me as I was, as I was studying that this is something, although this, this story is peculiar to John, this kind, of story is, this kind of story is not peculiar to John. John seems to take great delight in telling us these kinds of stories. I thought about in chapter 3 when he tells us about this conversation that goes on between just Jesus and, 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 and Nicodemus. Or in chapter 4 where he tells us that he sat down at a well in Samaria and had this conversation with just one woman. He tells us a story in, in chapter 5 and in chapter 9 of two men that Jesus healed. He healed one at the pool of Bethesda, and he healed another one who was born blind. And, he, and Jesus takes time to have conversation with these two. Think of in chapter 11 when Jesus goes to the, to the grave of his dear friend Lazarus, and he takes the time to speak individually with both Martha and with Mary. We're going to see in, in, in a few weeks' time when, when Jesus um, invites his disciples after his resurrection, invites them to, to enjoy a breakfast with him on the, on the lakeside, and he takes the time to spend with just Peter, Peter who has denied him, and now Jesus is going to take the time to, in intimate conversation, restore Peter. It seems to be something that... that, that, that um, that John is particularly interested in. He wants us to know that Jesus is not just the Savior of the world, not just the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's also one who came to, to be in relationship. He's also one who came and knows each one individually and, and ministers to each one personally. I think that says something to us. That's what our expectation should be of who Jesus is. Not just Lord and Savior. Yes, Lord and Savior to be sure, but also personal friend. We're going to see in our text this morning both friend and, and, and brother. This is who Jesus is. This is the, the portrait, I believe, that John wants us to see of Jesus as he writes this, this gospel. It also made me think of the intimate time. Uh, we mentioned this when we were going through the, the upper room discourse that John devotes five entire chapters to this interaction with just his disciples. It's not, it's not on an individual basis. It's with his disciples as a whole. But we see Jesus in this intimate time even with his disciples in the upper room. And it reminded me of something that he said in that context. This is... Uh, in John chapter 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while and you will see me. And that's in verse 16, jumping down to verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And in verse 22, so also you will take your joy from you. I'm, I submit to you that what we're going to see in our text this morning is what I would call a personal particularization of the fulfillment of this promise. Yes, you can say that as many times fast as you think you can. A personal particularization of the fulfillment of this promise. 
because we see at the beginning of our passage Mary weeping and lamenting. And as the story progresses, we're going to see that sorrow turn to joy. So, so let's jump in. This is, uh, this is the story that John tells us. He begins with um, an angelic visitation. It's interesting to me, again, that the way John tells the story, the angels don't show up until this point. In the other Gospels, the, the, the angels are there when the women go. In fact, it's the, it's the angels who tell the women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is, is not here. He's been, he's, he's been resurrected. John tells the story a little bit differently. As you recall from the beginning, he, he tells us that Mary goes to the tomb. She's, she's hoping to be able to, to supplement, perhaps, some of the spices and, and the ointments that have been placed on Jesus' body. She goes there, and she sees that the stone has been rolled away. No mention there of angels. She goes and tells uh, Peter and John that Jesus is gone, that someone must have taken him, that someone must have, been, have gone and, and, and removed him from the tomb and, and taken him somewhere else. Again, no mention of angels. And then Peter and John run to the grave, to the tomb, and they, and they look in. In fact, Simon even goes into the tomb. Again, no mention of angels. And now, at the beginning of our passage this morning, the angels show up. Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, just as, just as John did. She got a little low. He had to get, get a little low to see into the tomb and she looks into the tomb, and whereas John and Peter saw the grave clothes, the, the, the empty grave clothes laying in the place where Jesus had been laid, the, the, the face cloth folded up and sitting in a different spot, she sees something else. She sees two angels, two angels sitting where Jesus had been, where he was no longer, and there they are, sitting at either end of where he would have been laid, where his body would have been laid. Uh, one commentator that I, that I studied as I was preparing had an interesting take on this, on this picture. Take just a minute and picture it in your mind. You're looking into the grave and there's uh, perhaps like a bench where Jesus' body had been laid. And then on either end, you see an angel sitting. This is... Uh, this is the way, uh, this, man, James Hamilton is the commentator. He wrote this. Um, Peter and John left the tomb to return to the other disciples, but Mary lingers at the tomb, weeping and stooping to look into it. There she sees two angels where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the feet. It is as though the place where the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb has become the mercy seat in the most holy place, overshadowed by cherubim, on either side. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel took the blood of a slain bull and goat, entered the most holy place, and sprinkled the blood over the mercy seat to make atonement for the holy place, cleansing the tabernacle. Now these two angels stationed themselves at the fulfillment of the mercy seat, where the true blood of atonement was sprinkled, blood that cleanses what the tabernacle and the temple symbolized the whole world. 
That, that, that's a picture that gives me chills. I don't know about you. As you're sitting there right now, I, I have chills. Right? This, this picture of, of, the, of, the, of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and, and the fulfillment of that happening right in the, right in the sight of Mary here. I, don't, it's, you know, I, I guess if, if you push me on it, I, I guess I can't necessarily prove that's what, what John was trying to picture, but I can see it in my mind. The, the fulfillment of what the Ark of the Covenant was meant to portray the presence of God with his people, the atonement for the sins of the people, and Jesus in fulfillment of all of that wonderful foreshadowing that we see in the Old Testament. I think it's pretty amazing. So the angels are sitting there and... Um, they only ask, they ask, they ask Mary a question. They don't, they don't say anything to her. Again, in the other gospels, they, the, the angels are there with a message. Here they just have a question. Verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. It's interesting. That's almost exactly what she said earlier when she went to Simon and, and, and um, to Peter and to John. But when she went to tell them, she speaks in the plural. It gives us sort of the idea that as in the other Gospels, it wasn't just Mary who came to the tomb initially. Initially, there were others. John just mentions Mary because he is going to have more to say about her later. But she says in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him seems to imply that it's not just Mary Magdalene who came to the tomb initially, and which, would, which would be in parallel with what we see in the other Gospels. But here it appears that she has returned by herself. John and Peter have returned, as it says in, the, uh, in verse 10, that they went back to their homes. They, they're, they're processing what they have seen, what they've experienced. And sometime after... Maybe immediately after, maybe she followed right behind them, maybe it's later in the day. We don't really know. We just know that later on, Mary Magdalene comes and returns. And here she says it very personally. She responds to the question of the angels, woman, why are you, why are you weeping? It's as if they, they're anticipating being able to tell her this wonderful news, but they don't quite have a chance to, to, to get it out. Woman, why are you weeping? You don't need to cry. They're there's, Jesus isn't here anymore. He's, 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 why do you seek the living among the dead? He's, he has, he's risen. They don't say any of that here. At least John doesn't record it. She, they just ask her the question, and she says, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. It's, again, very, very personal. It's interesting to me that the reaction that she has, it seems obvious that she that she knew she was interacting with angels, perhaps not in the moment, maybe later after reflection, because, well, they're called angels here, and the only way that we could have known that there were angels there is if Mary told the other disciples that she, that she saw angels. She was the only one there. So somehow she knew she was interacting with our angels, you know, the, the fear of the shepherds. You know, Mary was, when she was, when the, when the uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, when when she encounters Gabriel, she's, she's fearful. She's, she's taken aback. She doesn't know what to say. When Zechariah encounters the angel in the temple, when he's told about John the Baptist's birth, he's, he's, he's fearful. Here, I, it's, it's hard to say. Is she just so 
Is she just so grief-stricken that she can't even really process what she's seeing here? Does she really know in the moment that she's, that she's encountering angels? It uh, made me think, it made me, made me wonder about our own thoughts about angels. You know, how do angels interact with us? If we were to encounter an angel face-to-face, how would, how would we react? Um, it, it reminded me, there was, um, Billy Graham wrote a book about angels. Um, this, is, this is part of what he said um, about, about, how, about how we interact with angels in our own context. He says, the Bible makes it clear that God's angels are still very much at work, although their ministry is largely unseen by us. Even when they take human form, as they cannot forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. That's Hebrews 13.2. What do the angels do? Occasionally, God may entrust them with special messages, just as He did when the angel Gabriel told Mary that she would become the mother of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I've, this is Billy still speaking, I've heard reliable reports of people today who live in countries with no access to the gospel but have, who have come to Christ because of an angelic visitation or vision. But for the most part, the angels have been given the unseen task of watching over God's people and guarding them from spiritual and physical harm. Only in heaven will we realize just how much they did for us. The Bible says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Hebrews 1.14 We aren't to worship angels or to become overly preoccupied with them, but we should thank God for sending them to watch over us, and they should cause us to trust Him more fully every day. Because of Him, because of them, we know our lives are safely in God's hands and that someday they will take us into His presence forever. Or as the great theologian Amy Grant said, angels watching over me every move I make, angels watching over me. Um, I, I wonder, you know, again, I, these are things that I can't necessarily prove from the text, but I wonder if just this picture of angels that we, we see in this text is a reminder of that for us. You know, these angels weren't there, yes, these angels weren't there um, in, in, this, in this bombastic form like we see on, on the hillside over Bethlehem when they come to proclaim the birth of Jesus. It seems like they're more there to, to encourage Mary, to, to redirect her focus, to, to, to bring her to a place where she can see what has actually happened. She, she's obviously quite confused about what has transpired here. When she says that Jesus has been taken away, she seems to have the idea that somehow he has been relocated when in fact he has been resurrected. And I think the angels here in this context are just there as a prompter, <clears throat> excuse me, as a prompter to, to, to point her in the direction, to, to, to put her in a position where she might just catch a glimpse of Jesus, which, uh, which is, of course, is what we, what we see next. We go from this angelic visitation, that's all they do, they just ask the question, and they, I don't know if they, if they then disappear off the scene, we don't hear from them again. The next interaction we see is with Jesus himself, and it begins with a, with a mistaken identification. Having said this, 
Jesus, uh, having Mary's having said, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've laid, laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus. I think the way that phrase is phrased is very telling. It says, she turned and she saw him, but she didn't know. She saw, but she didn't know that it was him. Let me that again. That's very, that's very telling. I think what it says for us is that there, there are ways of seeing Jesus that are not sufficient. That we can see him, as many do in our world today. That they see him and say, yes, we, we believe that this man... Jesus lived, he was an historical figure, that he, that he taught many wonderful things, that this what, record, what is recorded of what he says in the Gospels is, is true, probably. What a great teacher he was, you know, like many other great teachers who have lived. So they see him, but, but they don't really see him. They don't, they don't see him in a way that causes them to, to know that it is Jesus and who he is. And then Jesus speaks to her and he says, he repeats the question that the, that the angels asked, woman, why are you weeping? And then he asked the question that I used as, our, as the title of our, our, the message today, whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? submit to you that is the most important question that any human being who has ever lived and whoever will live will answer. Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking one who was a, a, a great teacher, a, a, a rabbi that was worthy of being followed during his life, but now who's been crucified, buried, well, perhaps having his grave violated and he's been moved somewhere else. Is that, is that the one you're seeking? Is the Jesus you're seeking one who, is, who lived and now is, is dead? If that's the Jesus you're seeking, you're seeking the wrong Jesus. And we, we got a glimmer of that at the end of our passage last week. It said that John believed for, as yet did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Chris made the point that there was a belief that was based on what he saw, but it still, it wasn't, it wasn't quite enough. It wasn't rooted in the truth of what Scripture says about Jesus and who he is and what he was going to do, that he was going to be killed, but he was going to rise again. I say that's, that's all part and parcel. It's all rooted in this question that Jesus asks of Mary, the, the question that he asks of you and of me. Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking a Jesus that, that you've conjured up somehow in your own mind? Or, or, or are you seeking the Jesus that is, that is rooted in the truth of Scripture? That from page one to the very end is, is depicted as one who was going to come and offer himself as a, as a sacrifice for our sins. That he must die. And that he would rise again to conquer sin and death and Satan. Is that the Jesus you're seeking? Money of Scripture. 
Mary's not quite there yet. It says that she supposed him to be the gardener. You know, she's, there's some guy, he's hanging around in the garden on, on Sunday morning. He must be the gardener. You know, he's, he's there to, to tend to the, to the garden, maybe even to tend to the, to the grave where Jesus has been laid. He's come, seen the stone roll, rolled away. And she's, she thinks, well, maybe, maybe something's happened. He's been, again, been relocated, and the, and the gardener might know something about that. So she asked him that question. She supposes, supposes him to be the gardener, and she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Now, rooted in that statement is her belief that Jesus is, is dead. That his body must be somewhere. It's not here. It's not in the grave anymore. You know, she, she, she's looked into the, it's, it's, it's slightly amusing, but I, I put myself in my place. I don't know what I would have done anything different. She, she stooped and looked at the grave. She's seen these angelic figures, not sure how, quite processing who they are, but she, she's seen that somehow angels are getting involved in this, in this process, and, she, and she, she's still not sure. All she sees is that Jesus isn't there. And I'm assuming she also sees what Peter and John saw. She sees the grave clothes that are, that are laying in the place where Jesus would have laid, and he's just, he's just gone. And in the midst of all that, she is struggling with unbelief. You know, Jesus told his disciples... I got to believe that Mary was around during one, of, one or more of these declarations that Jesus made, that he was going to be crucified, and on the third day he would rise again. She, she's heard this before, just as Peter and John had heard this before. And yet, she's struggling with his unbelief. It just doesn't, it just doesn't, just doesn't make sense for her. When she sees an empty tomb, she assumes that the body that was there is now just been relocated, not, not resurrected. So please, Mr. Gardner, could you just tell me where he is? Could you, could you tell me where they've taken the body? I, I, would, I, would, I, I want my, my, my teacher, my rabbi, my, my Lord, to be, to be tended for properly. You know, someone's disrupted his gravesite, and I want it to be put to rights somewhere. Maybe she had another idea of another tomb elsewhere where he could be placed. Tell me where you've laid him and I'll, I'll take him away. I'll tend to his, to his body. And in the midst of this mistaken identification, Jesus speaks just one more word, calling this the teacher's Revelation. You could call it his self-revelation. And it, and it comes in a word. Now, he's already spoken to her. She's already heard his voice. But it, just as it says, she saw but did not know, I think we could also say she heard but didn't really hear yet. She heard his voice, but she didn't really quite hear it. And it says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. 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 Again, I, I try to put myself in Mary's place in this moment. When in the midst of her doubt, in the midst of her despair and her grief, 
and her unbelief. She finally hears him. And what she hears is her name. Can you imagine it? Robert. Shelly. Andy. Tommy. John. Matt. I, mean, I, I could go on, but I won't. Can you imagine in that moment hearing your name and having your name spoken by Jesus clear away all of the, the doubt and the despair and the grief and the unbelief? Again, I think what we're seeing here is a, particulariz a particularization Jesus made. This is in John chapter 10. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. But his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. In a moment, in the midst of all her grief and despair and doubt and unbelief, Jesus speaks her name. And she hears his voice because she's one of his sheep. And the sheep know the voice of their shepherd. She turns to him and she says simply a word that she's probably said to him over and over and over again throughout the time that she has spent with him. Rabboni means teacher, as, as John tells us. Rabbi, Rabboni, they're, 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 they're similar words. They're, they're perhaps as maybe a little bit more depth of, of, of devotion and feeling in this word, Rabboni than we see in the word rabbi. That she is acknowledging that she knows who he is. As she hears his voice as one of his sheep, she, she knows. Not only now does she see, but, but she knows. And Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but, I, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and <clears throat> your Father, to my God and your God. This um, phrase at the beginning of verse 17, uh, I, I always love it. I've, I've encountered this before uh, and, and always enjoy when I encounter a, a commentator who says, <clears throat> excuse me, something about uh, a passage like this. This is D.A. Carson commenting on verse 17. He says, this verse belongs to a handful of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. It's always exciting because it, I don't know about you, but when you read that phrase, do not cling to me, it does make you wonder, what, what is Jesus saying? Why is he saying that to her in this moment? You know, did, as she acknowledges him in his presence, did she, did she fall to his feet? Is she, is she hold, it's hard to say. It doesn't, the text doesn't tell us. But somehow she has made contact with Jesus. And then Carson goes on for the next three pages and, and tries to explain all the different viewpoints of different commentators on what, it, when Je what Jesus meant when he said, do not cling to me. Um, 
for our purposes, I, I, I think well, I'll just go with what, with, with his thoughts on it. it. It seems to make the most sense to me out of all the, the I'm not going to belabor all these different points of view. Um, Carson writes this. He says, the thought then might be paraphrased this way. Stop touching me or stop holding on to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. That is, I'm not yet in the ascended state. So you do not have time to hang on to me as if I were about to disappear permanently. This is a time for joy and for sharing the good news, not for clutching me as if I were some jealously guarded private dream come true. Stop clinging to me, but go and tell my disciples that I am in the process of ascending to my Father and to your Father. It's... Uh, Again, I think uh, Jesus' attempt to, to refocus Mary's attention on what is important here. I said at the beginning that this was a very personal, a very intimate moment between Jesus and one of his dear followers. But it's clearly Jesus' intent that it doesn't end that way. It ends not as an intimate moment between Jesus and one of his, one of his followers. It, it ends as a commission. You see that, right? This, this, as I'm calling it, an evangelical commission. After he says, don't cling to me, he says, go and tell other to my God and to your God. Uh, Chris texted me earlier this week um, with this nugget from one of the commentaries he's, he was reading. He, 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 I, not, I think he said, I don't remember how he described it. It was a gem or something like that, or I don't know. Anyway, this is, this is what the, the commentator said. He says that, because I don't know if you know Chris, he likes to count things. He, he loves to count things. 108 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to God as Father. Count through, anyway, but anyway, Chris is one of them, I'm sure. 108 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to God as Father. 27 times he says, my Father. 71 times he says, the Father. But only one time does he refer to God as the disciples' Father. And that's here in verse 17. I think what that means is that Jesus is declaring, he's inaugurating a new era in the relationship between God and man. And you notice he says, go to my brothers. And Mary understands he's not talking about his physical brothers. He's not talking about his biological brothers. He's talking about his disciples. That's who she goes to tell. So this, this new era of this relationship where God is not just the father of Jesus, but he is our father and Christ is our, our brother. This is, this, is, this is the dawning of something new, this, this relationship between God and man, not only are we God's people, not only are we the, uh, 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 a holy nation, but we are, we are family. We're family. Christ, our brother, God, our father. It's really an amazing thing. Um, Carson uh, cites Romans Eight in his uh, commentary here. Uh, I want to mention that as well. Paul writes this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, go to your brothers. Give them the the good news that I am, having completed the mission for which God sent me, I am now ascending back to the place where I belong my rightful place at the, at the right hand of God. And I'm ascending to my Father. I'm ascending to my God. But He's also your Father. And He's your God. And Mary goes. Jesus says to Mary, go. You notice there's no other conversation recorded here. Mary doesn't doesn't hesitate. She goes, she says she went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I think it's worth noting, try not to put too much emphasis on it, but the word here translated seen in verse 17, I'm sorry, in verse 18, and the word translated saw back in verse 14 when it said that, G, that Mary saw Jesus are different words in Greek. They're different words. There's a, there's a shade of different meaning when she says, I have seen the Lord, than in this seeing that she had earlier in the passage. We saw that that seeing was deficient. She saw and she didn't know. Then she's able to go to the disciples and say, I have seen the Lord, and it's a whole different kind of seeing. It's a whole different kind of seeing. It's, it's the kind of seeing that we, that we recited in the passage from Ephesians this morning. Physically as well, comes through the eyes of the heart. Now, Mary had the privilege of seeing him physically as well. None of us have had that privilege. But even though we haven't, We can just as definitively declare to others that we have seen the Lord because we have seen Him both in the pages of Scripture that have enlightened our hearts so that we can see Him with the eyes of our our hearts. So I conclude with a question or two for you this morning. And the first question is the question that Jesus asked of Mary Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking the risen Lord, the one declared in the pages of Scripture as one who would come as the sacrifice for your sins, pay the price for your sins, take your sins upon Him on the cross, and now has been crucified and buried and risen and ascended? Is that the Jesus you're seeking? Again, the uniform testimony of Scripture that is, if you seek, you will find, if you seek Him with all of your heart. You will find him. He he stands ready to be found if you will seek him with all of your heart. So have have you found him? Are you seeking him? Have you found him this morning? I would I would I would beseech you that if you haven't, that you that you seek him with all of your heart, that you pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you could see him, that you could be saved by him. And if you have, if you have seen him, if, if in the pages of Scripture and in, in his enlightenment of your heart you have seen Jesus, then my question is, to whom are you being sent? Because make no mistake, just as Jesus, as he enlightened the eyes of Mary's heart so she could see him, 
and know him. The next step was ascending. Not ascending, but a sending of her. I would submit that's the same for you and for me. That that our, our seeing of Christ is not an end in itself. It brings us salvation. It brings us redemption. It brings us a restored relationship with God. Amen. Hallelujah. But it's not an end in itself. If it were an end in itself, as soon as we were saved, he would just take us home. But he doesn't do that. He, he leaves us here because he then sends us, because there are people to whom he wants us to go. Because miraculously, we can be a means by which others' eyes are opened. Other hearts are enlightened to see him. It's the greatest privilege that any person could ever have to be a means that God uses to open the eyes of another person. So if you've seen him, praise God. Where are you going and to whom are you going? Would you pray with me? Father, we, um, we want to see Jesus. None of us sees him as clearly as we ought. If we did, our, our eyes wouldn't be so preoccupied with so many other things. So we pray that in the words of the, of the hymn writer, you would turn our eyes upon Jesus so that we can look full in his wonderful face so that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to we see Jesus. And then open our eyes to a world that needs to see him as well and use us, send us, make us willing to go to those who need to know him too. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the band.